Welcome to The Twelfth Story, a book discussion podcast produced by Cincinnati's Mercantile Library, where readers gather to engage, connect, debate, and discuss. The Mercantile Library is 180 years old and is the literary center of Cincinnati. Throughout the year, the Mercantile Library hosts authors and speakers, book discussion groups, and other civic events. We are a working library with more than 90,000 books available to members. We're located at 414 Walnut Street in downtown Cincinnati and online at mercantillibrary.com. And we always welcome new members and guests. Joining us today in the lecture hall on the 12th story of the Mercantile Building are Brendan Cole. Hello. Ben Greenberg. That's me. And, oh my gosh, this is the episode where we have Alex Bloomberg, one of the greatest, uh, arguably, the, you know, one of the greatest living podcasters of all time, uh, founder of Gimlet Media, an entrepreneur in his own right. Yes, in his own right. We can say that. Um, and not only that, not only is he on this podcast, which is extremely exciting, but he is coming to speak here for the 2035 lecture. Um, so it's not a book discussion podcast today. Uh, we will be interviewing um, a legend. Um, so stick around. Hi, Alex. Uh, thank you so much for being on the 12th Story, which is the Mercantile Library podcast. We are honored uh, to have you. Um, so thank you so much for doing this. Great to be here. We're super excited that you're coming here in uh, just over a month um, for the 2035 lecture. Yep. I'm very excited also. So first question is, uh, you know, take us back to how you got your start in radio and uh, a little bit about uh, your career. Sure. Uh, well, let's see. How did I get my start in radio? I, uh, I, was, I, had, I had an internship at Harper's Magazine, uh, which was, so I was a teacher. I was a, I was a science teacher at a, at a middle school in Chicago. Um, but I really wanted to get into sort of journalism, and I, I liked the kind of sort of long-form journalism that you find in, like, Harper's and The Atlantic and The New Yorker. Um, and so... Uh, one summer, I, I applied for a job. So I applied for an internship at Harper's, uh, and this was in the this was in the early '90s now, um, and I got it. So I went to I spent uh, the summer in New York, you know, fact checking and sort of like doing all sorts of other sort of intern type stuff for Harper's, um, and they have a very well developed internship program, and they have four interns at a time, and it's all it's all it's really it's really cool. Um, the interns are a big part of it. And so um, that was great. And so I did that for a while. And uh, through that, I met a guy named Paul Puff, who is now somewhat famous. He's, he's a big-time best-selling author. Uh, but um, at the time, he was an editor at Harper's. Uh, and he introduced, and sort of through him, I got introduced sort of to the This American Life crew in Chicago. So I went back to Chicago, and Paul Tuff was sort of like a, sort of like a, uh, an advisor and a sort of an editor to This American Life in the very beginning. Um, and uh, he and Ira knew each other. So, uh, so that's how I sort of got in. And so I started working as the um, administrative assistant at This American Life, which was a brand new show back then. Not brand new. It had been around for like a year, year and a half. Um, but it was still very early on. And so I was the administrative assistant. Uh, and... But because the staff was so small, I also was able to start doing other stuff like producing radio stories. That's how I got into it. 
and uh, from there, I just sort of like my sort of I fell in love with it, and I learned all I could, and freelance for a little bit, and then I went back to work at This American Life full time as a producer, and that was you know that was that. So talk about going from being a talk about going from being a, a, a journalist and producer and storyteller to the owner and, owner and founder of a, a now a, a content network. <laughs> uh, that's weird. It's very very different. I mean, I think there was a transition step, which was Planet Money. Uh, so Planet Money right. was the thing was the, was the thing that Adam Davidson and I started uh, after This American Life. Sub subtitled for me how I how I learned about the what the financial meltdown meant. <laughs> well, we I was learning right along with you. It was a um, it was a textbook yeah. class. So that was a podcast that we started, and it did, and it you know sort of got an audience and did very well, and and. And we learned from, like, and I learned from doing that that, like, I, I really, I liked sort of running something. So I was the, I, I reluctantly became the boss at Planet Money um, and then realized that I sort of liked it. Because um, I felt very satisfied with just sort of being, like, you know, sort of one of the, you know, hotshot producers of This American Life. I didn't, I'd been there a long time. I knew what I was doing. I got to do the stories I like to do, so it was like it felt like it felt like great. But like, why do I want to leave this? I get to do any story I want. I have all this editorial support. It's a great place to work. Um, and uh, and so, Planet Money was sort of like, well, there is this, you know, sort of like once in a lifetime story going on. I, I feel like I, I went to Planet Money sort of for the story. Like, it just felt like this is never, you know, I hope never happen again in my lifetime. And. Uh, and so it just felt like something to really just like fall dive into, and I felt like I could help sort of explain it to people. Um, but in do, in doing that, I learned also that I sort of liked being the boss because um, yeah. it wasn't really what I thought it was. It wasn't all about like uh, you know sort of like commanding people to do things or <laughs> you know sort of ordering people around. It was more like uh, it was more like just like helping people with their problems, you know, um, and trying to listen to people. That's, uh, that's fairly honest. Most people don't like to admit that they like being the boss, but I think that's probably more of a truthful answer for a lot of people um, than they want to admit. Yeah, well, I, I, it was because it was like different than I thought, and it was like, and, you know, but it was also very easy because it was just like it was just like a bunch of really talented people, and so it wasn't like it wasn't like much hard stuff that you had to do as the boss. It was just more like. If somebody, you know, just sort of making sure that people were satisfied, and if somebody's got like a little, their, you know, their nose been out of shape for a little bit, just like talking to them about it and stuff. Yeah. And it was also sort of like just trying to chart a course, like trying to figure out like what's the best thing that we can be doing here, what's the most exciting thing we can be doing here, and trying to sort of like keep everybody hurt, moving along in the same direction. If you've got a big project, to sort of keep everything going forward on that project. And I like that stuff. I think the biggest difference from so that that made me feel like well, I could maybe. That when once we started the company, like starting a company is just like so much more than that, though, you know, because um, you're just solving so many more problems and you're doing so much more stuff on your own and so much stuff that I had never done before. Um, so it's been very different uh, that way. It's just like um, there's and there's a lot more uncertainty. You know, like I felt like with a plan of money, I knew what I was doing, more or less. I was just sort of doing the same kinds of stories, but just about finance and economics that I'd done at This American Life. 
um, when you're running a company, it's just sort of like, well, is this a show we should do? Is this a show we should do? How are these people going to work together? What What is involved in sort of starting a show from scratch? You know, all these other big questions. And then how do we keep people happy and how do we grow an organization so that it, you know, that, that it has a, retains its good vibe? Um, you know, so there's just a bunch of brand new stuff that has been, um, has been you know, really interesting, really exciting, and, 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 and really difficult, really challenging. So uh, backing up a little bit, at, at some point, um, you know, radio shows also had podcasts. And I'm interested to know when you first came into contact with podcasting, and as you sort of grew into that uh, medium, what freedoms uh, do podcasting allow you, afford you? What are, what are new challenges? Uh, talk, talk a little bit about the differences between radio and podcasting. Well, I remember learning about podcasting whenever podcasting sort of became a thing. So I guess that was 2004 or something like that. And like telling Ira we should, have, we should just like release the podcast. And, um, and it took us a while to do it because we were just sort of like, well, nobody's listening to podcasts. But then I was like, I think it's growing. It's just, it doesn't make it. There's no reason not to. Like the whole world is moving digital. You're, you're, there's, a, there's an assumption now that you can find anything online. And so our radio show should be online. And it just stands to reason that more and more people are going to start accessing it that way. And then so we did it and we stood up as a podcast. And then slowly, just very, very gradually over, over the years, like the podcast audience just grew and grew and grew. Um, until at a certain point it was like, it was close to maybe half, I think. I don't even know, I don't know the numbers, but it was big. It was like a big audience, it was a big chunk of our audience. And then when they released Serial, that was after I'd already left, but once they released Serial, um, then Serial's audience dwarfed the radio audience. So Serial just hmm. had this gigantic audience. Um, so, uh... So what is a, and, and so I think I mean I think serial and startup as well to a certain extent both sort of exemplify what 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 podcasting allows you know um, a show like serial would never have been possible in just a radio atmosphere in a radio environment right like you can't we would try to do multi-part stories you know all the time and it was just a gigantic pain in the ass. You'd have to do the intro. You'd have to spend a minute and a half introing, and yeah. the intro is just sort of like reminding people where we were in the story and sort of bringing people up to speed and all the stuff that they need to know to make the emotional, to make it emotionally resonant, what you're about to hear. It was just really hard. And then nobody would hear your serialized anyway, you know, because and there was no way for them to. So, so it really limited the kind of story you could tell on the radio. It had to be a self-contained story. And so before podcasting and before it became sort of widespread, like something like Serial or something like Startup, a serialized story would not have been possible. Um, I think the other thing that podcasting allows is it allows just sort of like a lot more experimentation formally. Um, so you just have a whole bunch of different kinds of shows now that never would have been possible before because they're allowed to sort of... When you time shift your audience, you just like, you just radically you know, sort of expand the number of listeners that you have access to. Yeah. Because when you're on the radio, you can sort of like, they have to like your show, A, they have to find your show, B, and then they have to be listening when you're on. You know, and so that's hugely limiting. Whereas with podcasting, all you have to do is you have to like your show and they have to find your show and then they can listen anytime they want. So that just like radically expands the number of listeners that you have at your, that, that you are capable of reaching. Um, 
So, so it just enables a much more varied and diverse sort of slate kind of kind of show, um, which which I think is why you're seeing sort of like this flowering, this formal flowering that we're seeing in, in the podcasting world, where you have fiction and you have chat shows and you have recap shows and you have serialized shows and you have like history shows and you just like you just got like this uh, book just, podcasts, you know, yes. yeah, for, yeah, for for in when this American Life on the air it was like sort of like that was the only place that you could sort of find anything like that and then Radio Lib comes along and a couple other shows start but it's like it's the it's like podcasting where it's just really it's starting to flower you know it's similar i mean <clears throat> to hear you describe it like that it, it the the analogy is similar to what streaming is doing for you know television programs now um, where <clears throat> you know streaming versus network i guess because oh yeah, you, you can I just think, put it out there and kind of see what it works. And you, I know you have a little television background, um, but it they, it seems really similar. Yeah, I think it's very similar, and I think it's very interesting to see. Like the economics are very different in 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 TV versus versus podcasting, because you got Netflix, which sort of locked up a huge audience that's paying, right. so they they have a very different revenue stream than we do. We're, we're, we're ad-supported. And you have cable companies that are sort of like they get paid through contracts with the cable. So they've just got a big chunk of revenue that just comes in that's right. off of the cable subscription base. Um, but, uh, but I think in terms of like what everybody's trying to do, like in the new streaming world, I think, you know, sort of like ambition, quality, uh, and, and, um, and execution went out now. Um, rather than sort of appealing to the broadest, most common denominator. Uh, and I think that's what we're finding here. Like, you need a big audience, but it doesn't need to be the biggest audience. Yeah. Um, that's the big difference. So it needs to be good. It needs to, have, it needs to be able to reach not like the narrow, only, I'm only interested in cosplay sci-fi westerns from, you know, set in, you know. <laughs> we, we are very interested in cosplay at the library. <laughs> yeah. But um. like, but it needs to be... Uh, but it needs to be, but it doesn't have to be like, I don't know, um, uh, whatever, friends or something. Just yeah, yeah, yeah. The, there's something else about the podcast as a form that is interesting to me and I want to hear your perspective on, um, which is that unlike television uh, or, or, you know, re even like reading a book, listening to a podcast is, you know, you're literally the voice in our head. And there's this really kind of intense intimacy there and what like how do you feel about that as maybe like a responsibility or just does that weigh on you does that affect how you tell these stories oh yeah i mean i think it's funny i just i just gave a speech about this at, at podcast movement uh last week um where i was i, I was talking about the podcasting boom and 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 the um, Rwandan genocide, uh, and uh, like how what the relation is, and and you know, so radio was a huge part of the Rwandan genocide. There was a radio station um, that was you know, sort of a Hutu-backed radio station that was broadcasting a lot of this sort of like, um, you know, sort of like uh, extreme rhetoric. Um, but ultimately, it was but that, that sort of like was exhorting people to go and kill and sort of make sure that nobody was left alive and. It was just very, very brutal, and you know there have been studies shown that it was like it, it, it accounted for at least ten percent of all the of all the deaths in, in that in that 
genocide. And and um, I think what what it shows is this sort of the, the the danger and the responsibility that comes with that intimacy. You know, like this is it's not just podcasting; it's radio. I think in general, like when you hear somebody's voice but you don't see them, you you fill in, you create most of them. Like if you haven't seen Howard Stern but you've heard him, you yeah. you you fill in how he sounds to you, and that act of creation makes him in some small way a part of you, and it makes him feel closer to you, and it makes him feel like you, you feel more empathetic to what he's saying. You like him better. Um, the people that we listen to feel like our friends in a way that the people that we watch don't feel like our friends. Right. Like a lot, most people listening, most people watching the Kardashians are not necessarily thinking like, that's my friend. They're like people that are in their lives, but they sort of like, it's not like they're like, I want to, I don't know. Like, I don't think they feel that same sense of intimacy. They're sort of like judging them and watching them and laughing at them and, you know, you know, empathizing with them also, but sort of like a whole range of things. Whereas if you're listening to somebody, you're sort of, you're just much more intimate with them. If, that, you're, li- if that, you're listening to Reply All, you f- I mean, you feel that way. You're, yeah. you're, you feel like you're at the table having the conversation with folks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I don't think it's just like podcasts. And I think, I, I, I really feel people, the same thing, the same exact dynamic is going on with Howard Stern on the radio show. Yeah. The same exact dynamic, I think, is going on. It's like Rush Limbaugh. You know, I think there's like this feeling that these people, we know them. We've, we've, we've half created them in our minds. And, and so we're, 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 we feel closer to them. Um, and, so, and so that comes with a, a lot of responsibility. By the same token, because I, I think you are, you are overly influential. Like, not overly influential, but you do have... Do have like sort of a, um, you know an ability to make a connection, and that can be used in all sorts of different ways. Um, and so, uh, but I think the other thing that's interesting about audio and the, the the sort of the flip side of the Rwanda genocide, audio's role there is that like I think that same quality of audio can can be used to help build empathy. Um, if you think about like hearing a story about something, if you think about like your favorite story that you ever heard on Radio Lab or This American Life or Reply All or anything, like you, again, you're hearing the voices, they're coming to you, you're sort of creating the rest of them in your mind, and you might feel differently about, um, uh, like you heard PJ's story about sort of mental illness. Yeah. I feel differently about, like, you might feel more empathy to him and that and like sort of depression than you would if you were seeing him talk about it. Um, and you might feel more empathy to, you know, the, the, a character in the story that you're hearing rather than seeing, simply because you're sort of like doing a little bit more work to create them in your mind. And all the other sort of biases that come along with visual identification, so they are stripped away. So I think that is very powerful. I think, I think audio more than any other medium can be a force of, 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 of empathy and can be sort of like a little bit of a counterbalance to some of the sort of extreme polarizing things that we're seeing in other kinds of media. So um, shifting gears a little bit, um, Cincinnati, I want to talk about the fact that you're you're from here, you grew up here, um, you lived here for a period of time before, presumably you went away to Harper somewhere along the way, as you told us at the beginning. and now you're you're in Brooklyn, um, but you've told along your career a lot of stories about Cincinnati. The Jerry Springer story is one of my favorites. You told a terrific story about um, your father, um, and, and then even recently the Blue Moon Saloon story, which we hugs in for me for my generation. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what 
Which my, I know, like so many people on 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 Twitter have been like, I am from Cincinnati. I always wondered about the place. Did, had you guys passed that location and uh, wondered that? Oh my I gosh! By it on so Sunday. often. Yeah. And I, in fact, I grew up in in Hyde Park, and I mean, Hugs Inn. It was such a novelty, like. The fact that there was a restaurant with a basketball court in it, I thought that was the coolest place on earth. (laughs) My my roommate after college and one of my closest friends in the world was the general manager there at the end of Hugs Inn and then the redo of Blue Moon. And so he worked for Jenny, who... who, um, Oh, yeah. That's amazing. She was my landlord for a period of time. We lived in an apartment. So (laughs) hearing... I hadn't talked to Jenny in a long time, and hearing her voice on the radio was like... I mean, it was a little mind-blowing, but... um, that place has special memories for a lot of people here, but, but big picture, I mean, you're, is, is there something that is, um, is there, for, for, we're located in Cincinnati, is there something about this place that's influenced your, your storytelling style? Um, is there something about growing up here that has um, given you kind of better skills at, at, at picking stories that are interesting to people, or, or does being in Cincinnati have zero to do with any of that? Uh, I don't think it has zero to do. I mean, I, obviously, the place you come from, you come from affects who you are. I think so. I wouldn't say. I think the biggest influence on my storytelling skills was, was, was Ira Glass. Like, I think that's where I learned everything that I learned. I don't. I was not a very particularly good storyteller. I wasn't the kind of person who was like, you know, sort of like knocking him dead at cocktail parties or anything like that. I didn't do like stand up. I wasn't. I, it, it was. It was hard for me to tell a story, and I, and I learned how to do it. Um, but I think where Cincinnati helped is that, like, Cincinnati's a really good – well, it's like when you go to the coast, you know, like, Cincinnati is sort of like – people are like, Cincinnati, what? You know, yeah. like, isn't that – you know, like, they confuse it with Columbus and Cleveland, and they don't really know what it is. And um, they remember WKRP in Cincinnati, maybe if they're of a certain generation, but aside from that, they don't know anything. And, and so – so there's this sense that, like, you know, like nobody there can, um, that the people there aren't real, uh, <laughs> I think, sometimes. <laughs> and so being from Cincinnati and understanding that, like, um, no, there's just, like, a lot of, like, the, the, the rest of the country has just got, like, you know, incredible amounts of just diversity and talent and interesting people and, you know what I mean? Like, some of the most, some of the weirdest, most, interesting, most fascinating people I've ever met were in Cincinnati. Like, Cincinnati is chock full of weirdos and, like, billions. And, like, you know, and just sort of, like, and so, and and I feel like that, knowing that, like, puts you in touch with a a truth about, like, the country, I think, that, that if you were born and raised in, like, one of the big East Coast or West Coast establishment cities, you might not know. Um, so I think I, uh, I mean, I hope it's clear. I have a lot of, uh, I obviously have a lot of hometown pride. Uh, I, and I think, um, and I think I'm really glad that I grew up there and I have kids now and they're going to grow up Brooklyn kids, you know, if everything goes the way it's going now. Right. And that makes me, you know, there's something about it that's cool. Something about it that's like interesting, like Brooklyn kids, but there's a, there's a, there's a very big part of it that makes me very sad uh, that they're not going to, they're not going to be from Cincinnati. Yeah. The other question we had uh, on those lines, are, are there any other stories that come to mind that you would want to tell or investigate about Cincinnati? Um, yeah, I mean, I don't know. Like, I, I, I feel like, 
not not any that I know of right now. Um, but I would I I I I, I would. Um, I'm always up for a good Cincinnati story. <laughs> <laughs> so so are we. So Wait, you guys we. got some? Oh, we, we will. Yeah. We'll, <laughs> when you come visit, we'll have we'll a list. We'll keep you busy. Yeah. So um, talk a little bit about um, Gimlet. I, I, you've got a, a stable of five shows, I think, now. Um, yep. It's continuing to grow and um, put out great content. What's the long-term plan vision the long-term plan vision is to is to sort of continue to be the leader, you know, continue to be sort of a leading voice in this in this in this new industry and and to to grow our you know our part of it. Um, you know, we we have we're we raised money, we hired a lot of people, we've built some studios, and so we we we're I mean, our vision is to sort of like go to the more ambitious, harder to produce, you know, sort of more, more formally inventive end of the podcasting spectrum. You know, um, there's not like we're, we, and we, we're going to try to do that at scale. So all the shows that we have in development right now, there's quite a few are all somewhat big bets, big teams, takes many months to produce the shows. You know what I mean? So, um, and that's where, that's where the, 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 the richest number of listeners are, I think. Like, if you look at what's at the very, very top of all the charts, it's always, like, you know, the new Radiolab spinoff and, like, the Malcolm Gladwell podcast. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of that stuff is, like, very hard to produce, very expensive, takes a lot of time, takes a lot of talent. Um, and that's the, that's the end of the pool that we want to try to swim in as well. What's um, the – so what's the – like lead time from idea to debut. I mean, is this, is it months, year? I mean, it can be a year. Yeah. Absolutely. Easily. Be more than a year. You know, I mean, um, uh, we, and then, I mean, it's hard to, it's hard to tell exactly when the, the idea begins. Like some of the stuff that's going to be launching in, in November, we've had the idea for like two years. Wow. Uh, but then it was just like, we had a bunch of other stuff and then we, thought one person was going to do it, and then they went on another project, and then this happened and this happened. And so, so like, so there's sort of fits and starts. But I would say once we're, like, fully, like, we figure basically once there's, like, a person in charge, there's a concept, and there's a team in place six months before you're going to launch anything. Wow. So I want to ask the failure question that we had. Uh, and I, yeah. I, you know, at the, so I listened to, I actually listened to the Blue Moon episode of, um, startup before like about an hour before this call and there was at the end a moment between you and uh, and the and the uh, hey, woman yeah. yeah telling the story and uh, about you were talking about failure and it's sort of like you it almost in my head I imagined you smiling because that's what we do right as you said we imagine we make it up and I want I want to hear I want to hear your thoughts on failure and when, when we were thinking about this question, you know, failure has become kind of a totem or, or even a, uh, it's something that, that people in the, in the tech world, the sort of fail fast mentality, it's, it's now become kind of like, you know, a, a badge. So I want to hear your thoughts on failure and, and kind of how you feel about that. Um, 
Well, I, I definitely know about the fail fast thing, and I think there's a lot of sense. That, I think that makes a lot of sense in a in in, a, in the tech setting. I I don't I don't think um, in a, in a, as a media company as somebody who's trying to I hate I, like I hate the idea of, like that we would launch something and, and that it would fail. Yeah. Um, but but there's also sort of like there's so many opportunities for failure even in a sh- like an individual episode can be sort of a failure like you can really you know and we've definitely had episodes that have worked and episodes that haven't worked you know and um and and you know you see it we feel it you see it in the numbers like certain episodes don't you know just don't get as many listens um and uh and so there's a lot of sort of failure built into being a media business in the, in the first place, like just sort of like every new episode is a new chance for failure. Um, so, so it's something that we think about a lot. Um, I, you know, and if we have too many artistic failures, then we will have a business failure also. <laughs> so, um, so this is the, this is the first time that my, that my, my sort of financial situation and has been so directly to artistic success, hmm. um, and that's very, very frightening to have them so inextricably linked that way. I mean, they were always linked in some sort of in, indirect way, but it was never like as complete and you know, sort of in front of my face as it is right now. Um, so, yeah, I don't, I, I, but, but I think, and I think we, I think we, we have had a very now talking to. Startups, we've had a very fortunate launch, you know, compared to what a lot of startups go through. Right. Um, and I think, I think this, I think we're gonna, you know, like we're entering a period where we're gonna have some failures. I know we are. You know what I mean? Like it's like we're 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 there's like uh, we're gonna launch some shows that aren't gonna work. We're gonna like have to reshuffle, you know, shuffle teams and stuff. So that's that, but that's 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 fine. That's all built into it. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I, I I I do not. I feel like I, I think I think sort of failure is sort of built into 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 media. So I'm not I'm not like hungry for it in the same way that I think tech companies are. Just yeah. because I think um, that they need that this is they need to put stuff in front. That this is their show. You know, when they do when they do a new product launch. That's when that's the that's the new episode they release. So that's right. where they get the feedback and like, did they go in the right direction or not? Whereas we're just, that's something we're doing all the time. When when you so season one of startup and also kind of framed throughout the yes yes no segment of reply all is this idea that uh, you Alex Bloomberg are an outsider, um, on, you know, in the tech industry or as an entrepreneur. Um, do you? So my first question is, you know, is that. Is that strategic? Um, does that help you tell a better story? Um, and two, uh, do you still feel like an outsider? Um, well, yeah, it's definitely a better story. <laughs> I mean, there's no question about it. That's yeah. why it's an interesting story, right? It's not. Tr- I mean, it's true. So it's not like uh, it's not like a story that I was like, you know, making up. But it's like, but uh, but um, yeah, that's that's what made season one interesting. I'm sort of like, how is this guy going to pull it off? Which was the question I was asking myself. Um, so uh, is it, right, am I less of an outsider now? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I've been doing this for two years now. Um, so I have like, I have a lot 
like I now know I'm, I'm much less naive about what it means to run a business, what it means to run a company, what it means to grow a company, uh, what, you know, just sort of like I'm just like a lot, I've, I've learned a ton. I was very naive in the beginning about like how, I, was, I mean, I, was, I think I was, I think I was, I was naive about like how easy certain things were going to be, hmm. you know? Um, it's, I think I sort of took for granted, like it is it's not, it's hard to do this stuff. It's hard to tell a story well in audio, a story that like stands out from everything else. Because when you, what you're doing when you stand out from everything else, even there you have just you're just like a, a brilliant new voice, and when you just talk into the microphone, people just love to hang out with you, and you're like, you know, whatever Adam Carolla or Joe Rogan or some of these other big, <laughs> you know, big podcast guys who just sort of host talk shows and and, and do great, um, or you have just like really honed your craft, and um, and you are doing things that are just every every inch of the way along, you're phrasing things slightly more elegantly, or you're like you've got like a slightly better sound bite, or you've got a slightly more inventive sound cue. And that's what makes you stand out, and that's what makes you not sound stock. Um, and so I think I've been like I had worked with some people who had gotten really, really good at that over many, many years. Um, and now we're like we, you know, there's not that many of those people, and so we're like trying to like build up, you know, sort of like talent, and like that's been that's it, it's it's really I mean, it's the thing that we're thinking about most is like sort of like how do we how do we train people in this, and how do we you know make them you know, and how do we you know sort of build the people who can sort of execute these shows, um, and I think I was like, and it's we're doing it, it's, it's happening, it just takes longer than I thought. Um, uh, and so that was something that I was thinking about, I think. Um, then there was many, many other things, which we'll be talking about in the next season of Startup. Can you just talk a little bit about, since Ben brought it up, the yes, yes, no segments are, are we talk, we, he and I laugh about them all the time. Do you, it just must be so fun recording those, um, or, or do you want to pull back the, uh, the curtain and tell me that it's all staged? Please, please, just at least tell us that you're having a great time doing that. Oh no, no, it's not all safe. <laughs> it's very, very much real. No, no, we just I, I pop in like it's edited. So like, right. But I will literally come into the thing and I'll have a thing. Sometimes, sometimes it's something that somebody has sent to me. Sometimes it's something that I've stumbled across myself. Sometimes it's something that somebody has sent to me. But there, but I'm always legitimately confused by them. Otherwise, it wouldn't work. Otherwise, you could right. You, you can definitely you can't take that. Yeah. You can definitely tell. I mean, and they are yeah, yeah. Um, extraordinarily yeah, entertaining. They're really fun to listen to. Um, let me let me shift to books a little bit before we let you go. Um, sure. We're a hundred and eighty year plus year old library, and um, your parents are members here, which we're we're thrilled by. Um, we try to try to we have you know seventy thousand volumes here, and, and we produce some pretty terrific events that we're really proud of um, here at the library. Uh, and you know we kind of aim at the Mercantile to be the literary center of Cincinnati, and so. A lot of times people come in here and they will ask someone who works here or they'll ask another member, what are you reading? And so that's a question we ask ourselves a lot around here. So I'll, I'll throw it to you. What are you reading and maybe what, what have you read along the way that's really made you the great storyteller that you are? Oh, <laughs> um, well, I, what am I reading right now? I am so, so I have two small kids and I yeah. started a company and the company and my company 
like sort of involved involved listening to lots and lots of stuff. But my reading, as a consequence, has really suffered. Like I am not reading as much um, as as I as I once did. Uh, I'm listening to uh, revisionist history, which is yeah. as Malcolm Gladwell has said, yeah. the thing he did instead of writing a book. Uh, I, I I can consider I sort of consider that reading Malcolm Gladwell's latest book. Um, <laughs> Uh, I, uh, so, but like re- books I've, I mean, there's a couple of books that I read very recently that I, that I, or somewhat recently that I, that I thought were just amazing. There's this book called Edoside, um, and it's this, it was written by a LA Times report, it's nonfiction. And it's, oh yeah, Ghettoside, yeah, it was amazing. Wow, was that a good book? Yes. That was just an amazing book. Um, J- so, Jane, uh, Jane Leovi, I think. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I just thought that was just like a tremendous. Did that get a lot of attention? Like, I'm not really in the book world, so I don't it, know. Like, what it did. It, it did. It got a lot of news. Um, I, I read it, and one of my other favorite books that I've ever read is was Homicide by David Simon. And oh. there's a, I mean, there's almost a direct line between the two stories. I mean, he wrote about murder in Baltimore and kind of the real what it, he spent basically a year and a half with the homicide detectives, and she did something very similar, just with L.A. crime in general. Um, right. But they they were both incredible storytellers, and her work is, I mean, we're interviewing you, but she just did it. She's got this blog where she covers every homicide in L.A. It's just uh-huh. un- unreal what she's doing out there. Yeah, no, I think she's like um, that. I mean, that book was just blew me away, and there were some some scenes in that book. Like, there's a scene where he's that that, that her main detective character is interrogating one of the key suspects, and it's just like. It's just pages of, and it's just riveting, just like sort of like his crazy approach and like how he frustrates them into finally sort of like blurting things out. And yeah. It's just like an amazing, amazing scene. Yeah. Well, do you, uh, any sort of parting shots, last, uh, last words for us? Um, no, I'm really, I'm, I'm really excited to come to Cincinnati. I'm really excited to talk uh, there and, and see the place. My parents are members. I've never been, so I'm really oh. excited. Uh, to like actually get a peek inside. Yeah, it's terrific. I mean, we we are the um, there's there's a, the library has a long a long terrific history, and um, when you when you come, you'll come up to the twelfth floor, which is the twelfth story, which is where we record this from, and why it's called the twelfth story. And there's names on the wall of people who have lectured at the Mercantile Library that are are unbelievable: um, Updike and Melville and Harriet Beecher Stowe and um, it's it's oh. got a, tre- a tremendous history to it um, that makes people think it's kind of old and stodgy, but we're also doing some things that are, um, we think, pretty cutting edge for Cincinnati and for what a membership library is doing, um, including this podcast, which is something that's just been around for um, not quite a year yet. Um, but our members really like it, um, you know, and... Uh, we we'll take any tips, including yeah. how to how to go away from using a speakerphone to interview famous, <laughs> right. famous podcast uh, company owners along the way. <laughs> yeah, I'll see if I can come up with it. When I'm there, maybe I can work out a different system for you. Guys. Yeah, you, <laughs> terrific. You take a look. Bring at our, us some uh, software. Our systems. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you've been really kind to yeah, do this. Thank you so much. Incredibly Alex. kind to come here next uh, month, and thank you so much. Sure thing. Looking forward to it. Okay, guys. Take care. All right. Take care. I thought that was really amazing. That was pretty true. Um, that was really cool. Uh, it's really hard.
to do that too. Because you're thinking like, all right, I want to pay attention to these awesome things that he's saying. And I also need to think about what's the next question I'm going to ask. Right. And how do I make it sound? How do I, yeah. Like your conversation. And like, there were a couple of moments where I just was like cringed at my own words. Like when he was like, do you guys have any stories? And I was like, oh, you betcha. <laughs> we'll keep you busy. Come on down to the hokey hoedown and uh, I'll show you some cool stuff here in Ohio. No, I got to uh, tell you, I think that might, I mean, you, you know I, I work for the Chamber of Commerce now, so I geek out when somebody says something great about Cincinnati. And I thought the way he talked about this community and what he learned by growing up in a place like Cincinnati, it didn't have to be Cincinnati, but a place other than the coasts, I think that um, that's, that was pretty great. And I think he, it gave he me chills, right. honestly. Yeah. Like, it was like, uh, for our listeners, uh, Brent and I both did a fist bump uh, <laughs> at that because it was, so, it was so perfect. And it's also something that people who love this place and also uh, you know, sort of want to see it continue to grow and thrive it's something that we all that we all try to say. We all try to tell other people that some of the most interesting and bizarre and and strange, but but smart and wonderful people are weirdos. here. He said weirdos. Weirdos, which is great. Which is great. Yeah. yeah, there are cities that spend millions of dollars trying to make sure people think that they're weird. Yeah. And, uh, he just told us we were weird and we didn't have to do that, so that was pretty great. Right. So I think uh, you have your next chamber campaign. <laughs> that's exactly <laughs> right. I, I'll just say, um, you know. It, when it comes to the Twelfth Story podcast, um, this this idea really came to a group of us as we were listening to podcasts like Reply All yeah. um, and the kind of content that um, Gimlet's putting out. So it's it it was really great to have him and then have him come to the library um, on August the fifteenth um, um, for the uh, August the fifteenth, twenty sixteen for the tw uh, twenty thirty five lecture. Um, so that's going to be a great evening. If you're listening to this now, before then, um, go to the Mercantile Library's website, sign up um, to be there. You'll meet Alex in person and, and his family, and it, it should be a great evening. Um, uh, thank you to Alex Bloomberg, and thank you for joining us today on The Twelfth Story. We encourage you to subscribe via your preferred podcast app. Uh, we're available on the iTunes Store and on SoundCloud. And if you like listening, tell your friends or tweet to us at Mercantile L-I-B, Mercantile Lib. Um, today's podcast was directed and engineered, as always, by the incredible Chris Messick. Special thanks to our guest, Ben Greenberg, and, of course, Alex Bloomberg. The Twelfth Story is a production of the Mercantile Library in downtown Cincinnati. Our theme music was created by Doug McDermott. Don't forget to visit us online at www.mercantillelibrary.com, where you can learn about our library and our upcoming events, including the 2035 lecture on August the 15th, 2016, um, at 6 p.m. Have a great week. Thank you.